0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaaf. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of The Missing Chapter. Today, Phil and I count down our top five war movies of all time. A little cinematic history combined with did-you-know elements to your favorite movies. So grab something to eat, sit back and relax. Welcome to The Missing Chapter. So welcome again. We're doing something completely different this week totally excited about this phil the research that we've done rivals any of the other stories in the episodes that we've compiled for our listeners but we have our top five war movies of all time now you and i uh, there's a slight age difference here yeah um but i also know that we have very similar interests so I'm, I'm i'm interested to see your list compared to mine just like any other story we have not shared our information right I, with either one of us they have to be historic They have to be historic and and explain what constitutes a war
1: movie, maybe over just a historic movie. Okay, so I think there's a lot of elements that go into this. But if we talk war movies, there's got to be a war element that the story is ingrained in the war of of that time period. Good. So, I mean, you could venture out and say there's a lot of movies that um, have war involved. But I think the highlight of of these top five for us personally is the fact that the plot contains uh, the war
0: itself. Correct, and that's just to give our listeners an example. There was some discussion over, for example, Schindler's List, yeah, which is a great historically based contextual movie. But the war really isn't the overall writing element, correct, to the film. So I included that, for example, in my honorable mention, but it's not in my top five
1: war movies. Right, and you could argue that we even mentioned Iraqi Four right you know during the cold war do you have you know do you include that could that be considered a war movie and of course our answer to that was probably not it was more of like a sports film but you know you could argue that that could be an honorable mention something like that so for those of you that that are at home thinking of all these different movies um because of course we have you know thousands to pick from that would be one that we might keep off the list because it's more of a sports movie than it would be a war movie right and you know what we
0: chose the number five because i think a top 10 is a little bit, it's, it's too broad. Right. We wanted to make it a little bit more of a challenge for us. Yep. Top five. We really had to this is you difficult. Know, pick through yeah. some, some great, great films that we're going to discuss. And like I said, in the intro, we're going to share some, some background information, some stories in, you know, the, the spirit of the missing chapter, some things you didn't know about the making of these films or what went into these films. We're going to work backwards. Number five will be where we start. Yep. And we'll work our way down to you know, what, what you chose as your number one war movie of all time and, and mine as well. And we'll just have a good time and a good discussion. And hopefully, those of you listening, reach out to us on social media. I'm guessing this might be the episode where people have some things to say. Um, you, you're, feel free to email us at the missing chapter podcast at Gmail or reach out to us on Instagram and Facebook.
1: Let us know what we got wrong. Let's do it, Phil. Let's do so it. let's start the episode of the missing chapter podcast top five war movies. All right, Phil, here we go. Here's my top five. Starting with number five, the movie that I chose, which I think there's a little skepticism around this. For me, this was probably more of a, you know, maybe the age gap thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It is historic. The debate around it and the skepticism around it is the historical accuracy. Okay. uh, Which I did not notice when when this movie came out because I was so entertained by it. And I've seen it so many times. But my number five is the movie U-571. Okay. Listen, I
0: <laughs> I had no idea where you were going after that introduction, but we've watched this movie together.
1: Yes. It's a great film. Okay. It's a great film. All right. So you were on the same page. Yes. Now, yes. before I get into the elements of U-571, and we'll discuss a little right. bit because it is over 20 years old. It mm-hmm. came out in the year 2000. Um, maybe some people haven't seen it. I don't know. I am just curious. Before we get into the details right. of this one, is this even on your list? It is not in my top five.
0: It's okay. not in my honorable mention. Interesting, but I did think about it, and it just again we go back to I had to narrow my list down enough. Right. It just didn't make it in my top tier. Okay, but I do. It's a great film, great cast, um, and and I
1: respect you for this pick. So <laughs> okay. I respect you for this pick. Go right. ahead, because yeah. I, I with all of my uh, lists of of war movies, I, I started to pick you know which ones stayed, which ones went right. off, which one's not even mentioned. This one, just for me, it was just like, I, I was so entertained by it. It was hard for me. I guess there's more nostalgia in it mm-hmm. than there is like historical accuracy. So I think for a lot of people listening to this right now, they might say, you 571, like what? How is it even in your top five? So it surprises me that it's 20 years old. So, I, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So for those of you that at home that, know, that don't know about this, it came out, like I said, in year 2000, uh, it's a fictional plot, but it, it does portray a World War II German submarine, uh, which was boarded by American uh, soldiers to capture her Enigma cipher machine. So I do not give you any more elements because I don't want to spoil it, but there are certain pieces of this that are just, that are, it's just a fantastic entertainment uh, kind of movie. Stars Matthew McConaughey. There's also Harvey Keitel and I mean, you and I both know we, we love our Bill Paxton movies. Mm-hmm. Bill Paxton was in it, as well as John Bon Jovi. And this might even be my favorite character besides Mr. Matthew McConaughey, Tom Geary. Now, yeah. for those of you that don't know who that is, that's Smalls from Sandlot. So how could you not include Smalls from Sandlot, right? Um, and being, you know, I'm 36, I love my Sandlot. And that's kind of a, a, a just a historic piece for me in, in general, because that's really what uh, I grew up on. So... Let's just talk about U-571 as far as some of the inner workings of this thing, the historical accuracy of this, and some of the did-you-know elements of uh, U-571. So first of all, for authenticity, how about this? The stage crew made a working submarine for filming in the Mediterranean. It was like off of Malta somewhere. But this is crazy. During production, an American warship actually appeared because they were so taken aback by the Nazi submarine. So they actually sent an armed team, and they actually boarded this this fake submarine just to check it out to make sure that it wasn't legitimate. That's amazing. Um, the Enigma machine, which uh, I mentioned earlier, that was used in the movie, that actually was genuine, uh, not a prop. It was actually obtained by a, a collector for use in the movie. All right. Um, this is kind of the part where uh, this historical accuracy. I think I, I started to notice some more pieces of this uh, as I started, you know, gaining more knowledge and. In history, And the movie earned quite a rebuke, I guess, from Prime Minister of UK, uh, Tony Blair, uh, many of the English community as well, for its inaccurate depiction of the American success. Now, if you noticed, uh, the U.S. actually never decoded this Enigma machine in 1941. The U.S. had not even entered the war by then, let alone done any code breaking. So that's something. That's a good catch that we were in the war.
0: And here we are deciphering a pretty valuable code to the allies. Yeah,
1: so I, I think Tony Blair might have something there with, like, you know, U.S. propaganda, but mm-hmm. it is something that was obviously an entertaining piece. Uh, History Channel Review, and this is, this is one that made me laugh, especially after I chose this for my number five. A History Channel Review of the movie, which um, aired actually quite, honestly, like pretty soon after its release, included a German World War II U-boat commander. So if you're going to talk about historical accuracy – Let's go to this guy to see if you know if there's any anything that uh, he saw that was just spot on. At the end of the show, he was asked, hey, what was what your opinion on the authenticity of the movie? You ready for his response? They got one thing right in the movie. There were U-boats in the North Atlantic <laughs> during the Second World War. <laughs> that was about it. Anything
0: beyond that? A little historical fiction? Yes. Yeah.
1: A lot of historical fiction and a little bit of freedom when it came to uh, depicting this this movie together in, in historical
0: uh, action. Yeah. But let's be honest. I mean, we talk about war films, an important element to that. Obviously, the historical accuracy. But if it encourages you to go out and do your own research and determine yeah, what, yeah. what's accurate and what's not. But the entertainment value. Totally. The entertainment value. And if you watch U571, there are great scenes. I mean, yeah. there are some really intense scenes. Scenes that don't really um, rely on gore
1: yeah, or, yeah.
0: or like over violence, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's good acting. Yeah, for sure.
1: It's good acting. Yeah, and, and I, I there's um, there's some more pieces of this, like some of the did you know's. Like Matthew McConaughey really wasn't even supposed to be part of this uh, this series, and neither was uh, John Bon Jovi. He was also in it uh, as well. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but, uh, you know, they pulled some strings and got these guys out. And there there were some other people that actually read the script um, that, that decided not to, and they turned it down. Uh, they were not mentioned in some of the research that I had I, uh, done, but uh, Matthew McConaughey obviously took the role. So let's end there for, for my segment here. Mm-hmm. That's, my, that's my number five. You got me curious. Well, Phil, I mentioned a little bit of a gap in our age. And
0: my number five is one I think that really the pinnacle of the 1980s when it came to war movies, this film kind of embodied that. Okay. okay. My number five is the 1986 Oliver Stone classic, Platoon. Oh, of course. And and I think when you think... There there seemed to be a whole genre within the war movies of movies associated with Vietnam. Thin Red Line, Hamburger Hill. Right. For me, Platoon really embodies what a Vietnam film should be. And I think if you look at the accolades that Oliver Stone and the cast and this film in particular um, received, it was very well um, deserving. Yeah, for and sure. And I think... It, it's much deeper than you would necessarily expect a war movie to be. But yes, I'm going Oliver Stone, 1986, the movie Platoon, which kind of tells the story of the central character, Chris Taylor, who's portrayed yep. by by Charlie Sheen in one of his earlier film uh, you know, roles. And he actually enlists uh, volunteers to go to Vietnam in an attempt to quote unquote kind of find himself. Yeah. You know, he graduates college and he doesn't really know what to do with his life. And the story is kind of laid out through a series of letters that he's writing home to his grandmother and what he's experiencing. And I remember watching this movie in 1986 and then getting to high school. And it was always a favorite of mine. Yeah. It very much. I'm not sure if this has been documented. I, I didn't find anything to me. This is a William Golding, Lord of the Flies sort of movie where you have a a very pure person put into a chaotic situation and is confronted with the choice of, am I going to go toward the more animalistic, brutal uh, side of of what we are as humans? Yep. And the Barnes character portrayed by Tom Berenger or the more sympathetic Idealistic uh, side of what humans can, compassionate um, elements that we have, and the Elias um, portion of of the character, which is portrayed by Willem Dafoe. Like you mentioned with U five seven one, I think if the first thing that stands out with good war movies, you have to have the cast. In nineteen eighty six, you know Charlie Sheen is not the Charlie Sheen that people know about today. Like I said, you have Tom Berenger three years before he was in Major League. You have Willem Dafoe, two years before he was in, you know, Mississippi Burning, which is another yep. historical classic. Um, Johnny Depp in a very small role. I was going to say, wasn't he? Yeah, him? Johnny Depp. Yeah. And, and one of the things I came across <laughs> was that, you know, the filming of Platoon was, was done almost entirely in the Philippines. And this was the first time Johnny Depp had been out of the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, Forrest Whitaker, who became another big name in, in Hollywood. It's just a great ensemble. Uh, John C. McKinley, if you're familiar with the TV show Scrubs. And he's one of those characters that you've seen in a number of different movies with small, you know, character roles. But I just, I, I loved the the story behind it. Kind of what I mentioned with U571, it's based on good acting rather than a lot of violence. I mean, there, there's a violent element too, but it's not the graphic visual violence that you see in some of the later movies. And in fact, some of
1: the movies I have on my list. Yeah. And I think with, with some of these top fives, I think we're going to get into some of the, those more gruesome right. elements. And I, I love the way you explain that, though, too, because he does have in this movie, as I recall, it, because I've only seen it a few times because, mm-hmm. um, you know, that obviously the age gap. But there is a sense of like idealism that he has. You know what I mean? Right. Where I think the way you explain that is, is perfect. Yeah. And if you if you believe Oliver Stone and there's
0: no reason not to in a lot of his interviews, I mean, this is the way that he went into Vietnam and his own experience fighting in Vietnam and, and what he internally struggled with good versus bad and then came home and 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 wrote about in the movie. Um, some interesting points. Um, obviously Chris Taylor, the lead character was the first major role that Charlie Sheen had gotten. Oliver Stone had said that he noticed him on the set and in the movie Ferris Bueller's day off, which if huh. you remember, he had a very small role, but it's kind of a memorable yes, one yeah. where he befriends Jennifer gray in the, uh, as, as kind of a drugged out teen, um, in the police station. Um, here are some other people that were actually offered that role prior to Charlie Sheen. First off, Jim Morrison, the lead singer for the Doors. Oh no okay. kidding! Yeah, Oliver Stone, Stone was a big Doors fan, and in, in an interesting note, the script was actually found in Morrison's apartment at the time of his death. Oh, come when they on. were doing the investigation. Yeah, Emilio Estevez was the second person they offered it to, but the the delay in getting the film started conflicted with some of the other movies that he was prepping for and had Very already. Interesting. Yeah. So it went to his younger brother, Charlie wow. Sheen. And finally, Kevin Costner was actually tossed around as well. But Kevin Costner had a, uh, a brother who had served in Vietnam and he decided I didn't want to really offend him in any way. Yep. And instead, Oliver Stone said, we'll cast you in JFK a few years from now. No kidding. So that was the favor that was returned. But uh, some other things I came across that were kind of interesting. There was actual revolution in the Philippines that overthrew President Marcos that actually delayed um, the filming of the, the movie. And one of the people who becomes very much associated with this film, and he has a very small role in it, is a guy by the name of Dale Dye. And Dale Dye was a Vietnam veteran, and he establishes what's called uh, Warriors, Inc. And what he does is he advises directors on how to make their war movies as accurate as possible. Okay. And one of the things he's become renowned for is that he will take the cast prior to filming and put them through two weeks of boot camp. Oh,
1: wow. I never yeah, knew Yeah,
0: and, and you're going to hear his name come up with a, a number of different movies that are on my top five. He's Captain Harris in the movie. It's a small role if, you're, if you are familiar with Platoon. But he takes all of the, the actors associated with the movie and he puts them through two weeks of boot camp, which means you are you know, living in the woods. You're building trenches. You're going through all of this stuff. You're eating certain food to give you as realistic uh, of an idea of what these guys experienced before you even make the film. And the accounts of what that did for the cast of Platoon is pretty amazing. John C. McKinley, who I mentioned earlier on at the end of the film, said by the end of making Platoon, we felt like we would made a love story about young men dying in war. And the brotherhood that Dale Dye helped create is something that they touched on in those two weeks, Wow, which is kind of interesting. Yeah.
1: So the, I, I'm curious to, to ask and I have some relatives yeah. um, that were in Vietnam. And I, I'm curious to ask them because I've never really had that conversation uh, of someone who was actually in active duty. And has been in the battle. I wonder how how accurate they would feel platoon. Really it's is. interesting because it, it kind of there were people who criticized it for
0: being a little bit too kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for maybe, maybe romanticized romanticized versus over the top uh, um, portrayals of certain elements. Okay, but Die convinced Stone to actually show the film to members of his veterans group even before it was completed. And, and released to Hollywood. And the men that he compiled were amazed and very, very much uh, appreciative of it and felt that the accuracy outweighed maybe some other things that were, you know, Hollywood elements. That's great. Which I think is good. And the, th- the last thing I want to point out too, this is kind of interesting. Uh, Platoon had a uh, a budget of only $6 million. which wow. you compare that with the other top movies of 1986? A movie like Top Gun was released that same year with a budget of 15 million by the end of the of its release its box office um kind of performance it resulted in almost 139 million that's insane so you take a look at a movie that financially made a lot of sense again it received all sort of uh oscar nominations and 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 wins and certainly has held up over time as being one of the great vietnam movies Okay, Phil. We're going to switch gears here, moving completely away from from Vietnam on my list to a completely different time period. Number four on my list is a film I, I just because we've talked, I know you have an appreciation for. It. But number four on my list is going to the Ridley Scott two thousand film Gladiator. Guess what? All right, I'm going for it.
1: four on my list is Gladiator. Is Gladiator. Also.
0: All right, so we have we have our first agreement. Um, you know, if you've never seen Gladiator, it is, it is a much deeper storyline than, than you might initially uh, think. You have uh, Russell Crowe's character, uh, Maximus, uh, who's a very well-respected Roman general. Um, it, it talks about his relationship with the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And through a series of events, he finds himself going from a military general to a gladiator and having to uh, deal with Marcus Aurelius' son, Commodus who's I think very brilliantly portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix in one of his earlier mm. roles. But um, for me, you know, great plot line. I think Russell Crowe was one of the, the first real roles for him. Um, interestingly enough, they'd originally Ridley Scott had thought about uh, casting Mel Gibson in that role, but because he'd already done Braveheart and because he was getting ready for the Patriot, Mel Gibson felt like he was being a little bit typecast in that, right. in that yeah. war uh, figure role. But I, I love the scenery, um, I love the, the storyline and the acting. Uh, I think the music's great. It's it's just a great all around package. I think,
1: and it's hard to believe it's it's over twenty years old now. I know, you know, and we um we, when we used to have the global one and global two courses separated, we actually would use Gladiator right. quite often to to describe what uh, the Roman Empire would look like because obviously now with the ruins, uh, you really can't get a good grasp. But I think this does a really good job of portraying. Obviously, the the, the plot line. There's some inaccuracies, but the, the way they use the CGI, the backgrounds, everything like that, it, it's very, very accurate. So that's something that we'd like to use in class uh, from time to time.
0: Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about um, the making of the film. Like, what did you find? I know some of the points I came across, but I'm interested to see if we have any similarities on okay. this list too.
1: Yeah. So Russell Crowe, I think, uh, you know, he, he plays obviously an incredible character. He's a, he's a great actor, but some of the stuff actually wasn't even acting. Um, one of those things is the tiger. The tiger is actually real. Uh, and, and he was quoted saying the tiger was a big boy from tail to nose, about 11 feet long. Um, and he, he, he basically said, you got two guys on a chain, which they actually showed in the movie, uh, with a ring in the floor to con- try to control this wild animal. So Russell Crowe actually said right before they started filming, OK, release him. And then, you know, Russell's falling back. The tiger comes up out of the hole and uh, they actually had to edit this part out of the movie because he, he swore a few times as the as the huge beast actually came pretty close to him. And uh, Ridley Scott even said, yeah, guess what, Russell? We were there right there uh, with you, and I was only about four feet away from this beast, and you were about two feet away. So they, they both felt how powerful this beast was and was actually uh, fully real. It wasn't
0: CGI. And you mentioned CGI. I, I'm looking over my notes here. Like you said, tw- uh, 2000 CGI or computer-generated imagery was you know, still in the very kind of adolescent stages, so to speak. Interestingly enough, in order to film the Coliseum scenes... They only filmed people in the first two rows. Oh, really? I yeah. Mean, yeah. And the replica that they created for the set of the Coliseum was actually 52 feet high. It consisted mostly of plywood and plaster. And the rest of it was completely done you know, through CGI around the computer. But it was um, to the cost of a billion, excuse me, a million dollars. Okay. Billion would yeah, have been a million dollars to actually build. It took several months to actually create. And again, for 2000, I think you look at this. And it's 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 very impressive. I mean oh, it looks extremely uh, realistic. The two other points I thought that that I came across that were kind of interesting um, was the one we had actually picked up when we showed our classes um, these uh, these scenes. Throughout history, actually, the thumbs up was given by an emperor and it actually symbolized death. right. So you'll notice in the movie, uh, Commodus's character uh, at the end of a gladiator fight will either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. The thumbs up historically, if we were to be accurate, meant that the gladiator left standing would actually, you know, face death. Right. And that the thumbs down would would mean that he would be spared. But what Ridley Scott thought would be people would be too confused by that and actually, you know, flipped that. Right. So So it would be a thumbs up,
1: yes, kill him. Thumbs down, no, don't kill him. Correct. Right. Yeah.
0: And the other thing that I found... Um, was a historical tidbit that I think is really interesting. That actually, when soldiers prepared gladiators to fight, um, a good portion of the time they would they would literally stab the gladiators in the in the back prior to the fight uh, to weaken them a little bit. And that's where the term you know, if somebody does something against you, you feel like you've been stabbed in the back. That's where that term originated. No kidding.
1: Yeah. So, does that have anything to do with when uh, communist stabs? Marcus, or excuse me, Maximus in the side? Is that right?
0: And that would be another historical inaccuracy. They they felt that they probably just didn't know that fact. And it was, I think maybe they didn't intend for it to be inaccurate, but it turned out to be inaccurate.
1: So some of those historians are probably saying, actually, they wouldn't. We should have have, looked that up a little bit better. Done our research a little bit more uh, thoroughly. So speaking to uh, the characters and the theme of CGI, I think this is important to to mention as well, that the character played by Oliver Reed, Proximo, Um, actually died uh, on set. Oh, wow. Um, And so Oliver Reed being a a really important character, there's actually an insurance money that would cover those kind of things. And they would give um, Ridley Scott and the movie itself an estimated $25 million to recast Mm. and pay for making up and recreating those scenes that Oliver Reed was in. But most of the actors and crew were pretty exhausted from the, the really punishing schedule. So Ridley Scott decided not to cut Reed from the movie at all. Uh, the script was actually rewritten because eventually they were, uh, when they originally had this written, Maximus was actually supposed to fight Proximo in the Coliseum. But obviously that didn't happen. The script was rewritten. A body double ended up coming in. So there's there are moments where I think if you really look carefully, you could notice. But I think they did a really good job with CGI to give um, you know Reed's character some sort of resolution. Um, and on top of that, the, the other real part were some of the wounds that Russell Crowe's face had was actually real. Um, after the opening battle scene, there's wounds on Russell Crowe's face. That's actually real. It was caused when his store—excuse uh, me—his horse was startled uh, and backed him up into a, a bunch of trees, and the tree branches uh, cut his face open. He actually had to get stitches in his cheek, which is actually clearly visible uh, if you go to the scene where he's telling Commodus that he intends to return home. Um, so that's an actual uh, part of the movie that really happened. Nice. So we agree. Number four, Gladiator. We're on the same page there. Let's take a look at number three, Phil. <laughs> All right, Phil, number three on my list is a big budget film. Uh, I'm sure this has made a lot of top five uh, movies for a lot of people listening. This didn't make it number one or number two for me because even though the the, the budget was huge, it was enormous, mm-hmm. $140 million to make. It was actually more than the actual damages that, that occurred at this event. The movie's Pearl Harbor.
0: Oh, Pearl Harbor. Okay. Pearl Harbor.
1: Okay. So I really enjoyed it, but the more I grew as a historian and the mm-hmm. more I did some research on it, the blunders in this movie is is very historically inaccurate. Now, as emotionally uh, encouraging as it was, this is a great movie. But when it comes to historical accuracy, there was a whopping 177 mistakes overall. Now,
0: Phil, this might surprise you. I'm going to be able to contribute very little to this. Okay. And you know why? It's not on your top five? It's not on my top five. It okay. didn't make my honorable mention. <laughs> okay. I've never seen it all the way through.
1: Wow. Okay. I've
0: never made it all the way through the movie.
1: All right. All right. Which well, isn't
0: to say anything negative toward it. I just have never yeah. had the opportunity or I've
1: never taken the time. All right. Each so each I'm zone.
0: interested to see what you what you have to say.
1: So I think, I mean, when this movie came out, it was, it was obviously incredibly popular. There's so much history around it, uh, obviously. But um, for me personally, it was always like, I think it was the the age thing. For me, this Mm -hmm. is a big movie when uh, when I was growing up. And I'll give you a couple of examples of the mistakes. And then I'm seriously curious about what your number three is. So let's just talk about some of the the overall mistakes. The first scene actually at Pearl Harbor, it it shows two boys in 1923 uh, with a crop duster. And if any movie fans or any uh, historic movie fans, you'll know that that's kind of ad-libbed as you go through because it's not historic. Um, What most movie viewers won't really know is that crop dusters weren't commercially available until the 30s. So it was about 15 years after the scene took place. Uh, If you look closely at some of the warplanes, I think this one is the most entertaining mistake for me. Look closely at some of the warplanes, you'll notice that attached to the bottom or the belly of the planes are not missiles, but torpedoes. Oh, so that was kind of a big okay, blunder for the directors right. and producers. Hey, listen, torpedoes are supposed to be underwater. Might not be something like the regular
0: movie right. goer notices or is able to right. differentiate between them.
1: Yes, for sure. And I don't know why this is for, for historians. They went bonkers online when it came to this uh, big movie blunder. It was a pack of Marlboro cigarettes in the pocket of one of the sailors. They actually didn't come out until 31 years After Pearl Harbor. Now, I would have never noticed that. But uh, with some of the comments I've seen online and and some of the historians that have had a a, a big gripe against Pearl Harbor, that was one of their biggest takes. And I wonder if that was just a mistake by the actor. Oh, could possibly. You know what I mean?
0: Maybe something that they just overlooked entirely. Yeah, quite possibly. So...
1: we got Pearl Harbor for my number
0: three. What's yours? My number three, I'm going a little bit of what I would refer to as a classic, at least from, from my list. I'm going with the 1992 film Last of the Mohicans. Oh, okay. <laughs> Last of the Mohicans, which was, you know, based around the uh, James Fenimore Cooper book um, in from 1826. It was based on the uh, British forces at uh, Fort William Henry when they came under siege by the French in 1757. Mm-hmm. I think part of my draw to this is is where we are located in central and, and upstate New York and right, right. proximity to Cooperstown, which obviously uh, got its name from James Fenimore Cooper, and obviously you know being about you know an hour and a half from Lake George, yeah, and and having taken groups to Fort William Henry, um, I really love ja- uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, he's, Daniel oh, Day oh, he's Lewis, great, great job. And, and I mean, movie. such a an epic film for him. Obviously, some inaccuracies, but. I think for the most part, it, it kept to the script that Fenimore Cooper wrote out in the book. Maybe not so much the actual siege, but it was pretty well versed on
1: uh, the novel. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've, I've never, as, as much as you have not seen Pearl Harbor all the way through, I've seen Last of the Mohicans, but it was when I was super young. I never read the book. Mm-hmm. So is there a lot of correlation between the two? Is there it- is,
0: there is. Um, You know, obviously the book was much more in depth. Sure. Um. But there was an, an actual Colonel Monroe who, like I said, led the British forces at, at Fort William Henry. Um, he did have daughters. Now, whether or not they you know, made their way to the fort while he was there with the help of these, of these natives that were uh, in upstate New York, I, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, the actual filming of Last of the Mohicans, even though it took place in upstate New York, it was actually filmed in North Carolina. Oh, I but I think that. if you were watch, to watch the film, it looks almost identical to where we are.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and watch it again then because I I really want to see. Great music. Um,
0: I mentioned Daniel Day-Lewis. If you're familiar with a lot of his other movies, I know um, I had heard this about him when he was on the set of Gangs of New York. Evidently, he completely wraps himself in a character when he arrives on set to the point where he refuses to leave that character whether or not they're shooting downtime away for the weekends, he likes to be referred to by that name. He will talk in that person's uh, accent or that the way that they do in the film. Wow! To, it's
1: I've heard that happen on yeah. other actors. Like they they want to be so immersed in the culture that the character represents. Right. This right. is like beyond to the point where I guess he really it was physically
0: it took a toll on him. He dropped a ton of weight for this um he lived in the wild for a while and learned some of the skills that hawkeye the character that he portrayed would have you know would have had so much to the point where when they were done recording and done filming and making this he had spent so much time outdoors that daniel day lewis actually complained of hallucinations and claustrophobia because he went back to living inside as much as he did oh my i know it sounds crazy he actually had to turn to a french holistic doctor who prescribed him a potion of mystery ingredients. I know I'm not making uh. this up. I'm looking at the, <laughs> the the face you have, which he assumed to be kind of a, a concoction of herbs and alcohol, but whatever it was, it seemed to do the trick for him. So, so do we, to this day, we have no idea what that was. No, no. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to point out, if you're a fan of this movie, then you know who West Studi is. The, uh, the native American, the Cherokee, um, actor who portrayed Magua in the film. Um, I just, I did some research on him. He was a Vietnam veteran. Oh, wow. And he was actually at uh, Wounded Knee, the occupation in 1973 that was kind of controversial in, in some of the, the, the federal uh, governments dealing with that reservation. Oh, my gosh. So he had some nice historic background yep. to him, too. But that was my number three. We're inside our, our number two now. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty, Phil. Let's see what you have. <laughs> Okay, Phil, I'm sure our listeners are waiting to to hear this movie brought up. We're getting down there. My number two, probably to no one's surprise, is Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. It's a great choice. Yeah, Saving Private Ryan. I mean, we use multiple portions of this in our own class to to help teach World War II and the D-Day invasion specifically. Some of the things I came across that I think you guys will find a little bit interesting is that it was actually Robin Williams. The late Robin Williams was the one who introduced Matt Damon to Steven Spielberg. Okay, while they were rehearsing for the movie Goodwill Hunting. Oh no kidding! And obviously Spielberg thought enough of him and, and Robin Williams's, you know, role in all of that to bring Matt Damon in and play a very crucial role in really what
1: was an epic film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean that's one of my favorites, and we'll, we'll get to that a little later.
0: Yeah, and the other thing I, I want to tie this back into what I had mentioned and someone I brought up during the filming of Platoon, again, Dale Dye played a very important role in this. Uh, not only in advising and making sure things that were done properly, terminology, you know, what these guys were wearing. Um, But just like in Platoon, he brought all of the major role players, all the major actors for Saving Private Ryan in two weeks early and put them through that same boot camp, living in the woods, surviving, uh, you know, as a group with the one exception of Matt Damon. Matt Damon was allowed to stay in a hotel, you know, continue to eat nice food, so the actual resentment that you see through the plot of Saving Private Ryan toward his character, at least a portion of
1: that, was legit. Wow. Yeah. Because okay. yeah, I, I honestly, the, one of the things that I love about that movie is the realness. I mean, right. there is there is a, a serious emotion involved that is really hard to portray if you're just solely acting. So you can tell that there's there's major training involved in that. And I don't know if everybody would notice that. I mean, because it's it's... Obviously, a Hollywood movie, so you want it to be somewhat entertaining. But in the, the historical sense, I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, I think the historic sense, uh, yeah, Spielberg really wanted to
0: make sure that he didn't you know, do anything that that veterans groups would look back on right. and, and say, boy, I, I feel like that was kind of um, a slight against us. Right, and did a disservice I, to them I, in exactly, any way. Yeah, Disservice, I think, is a great term. I always appreciated the fact that I'm not sure if there's a bigger name in Hollywood than Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he went through that that boot camp experience, just like everyone else, is a lot, you know, a credit towards him. And I also remember—I'm not sure if people are aware—really, it was the Saving Private Ryan was the stepping stone for Spielberg and Tom Hanks to then afterwards produce the Band of Brothers series. And those two were instrumental in lobbying the powers to be in Washington for developing the World War II monument.
1: See, I never knew that. It
0: was long overdue. There was not a proper World War II monument in Washington, D.C. Spielberg and Hank spearheaded the campaign to get the World War II
1: monument that is there now constructed. And that's why I love this conversation. Because, number one, I had forgotten all about the Band of Brothers. And that's an incredibly successful series. Number two, had no idea they were were involved in that, Yeah, the wall. That's amazing. So that's my number two. All right.
0: I'm I'm dying to know what... uh, Okay, what your number two is
1: so hit me with it first. all right so th- this is once again i don't know if, if everyone's gonna agree with this one i just thoroughly love this film it stars denzel washington and gene hackman it is crimson tide crimson tide is a great movie <laughs> okay. that's a great movie okay. all right wasn't sure how you're gonna feel about that so for those of you who have never watched crimson tide um it, it takes place on a, on a nuclear submarine and the I just I I love the drama between Denzel and Gene Hackman. Of course, those two names. I mean, how could you not like a movie with those two actors in it? And I mean, they come to blows at one point, which I'm going to reference here in a minute. But the plot of Crimson Tide, which I love, too, is actually loosely based on a real life confrontation that occurred on a nuclear submarine during uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, believe it or not. Uh, But the main difference is that the real incident occurred on a Soviet submarine rather than a U.S. one. Um, which is actually going to come into play in one of the explanations that I have here about this. So I, I think, like we mentioned before in, in some of the other ones, and you just mentioned about uh, Saving Private Ryan, is the realism of some mm-hmm. of these movies. You want to do a service to you know, the event that took place or the war or the battle, et cetera. Uh, they actually invited the U.S. Navy um, uh, to, to kind of direct things. And you got to remember, the, the movie makers, um, Tony Scott, uh, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, they were all working on Top Gun. They invited the U.S. Navy on the Top Gun and the U.S. Navy loved it. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why Top Gun was so successful um, was because they they had such a close tie to the U.S. Navy and, and the realism was, was something you had never seen before. And it's really because Tom Cruise, you know, worked so closely with the Navy and they actually had him, at, um, you know, in flight school essentially. So they wanted to take that and carry that over to Crimson Tide. Here's the problem. The original plot for Crimson Tide was actually not what it is now. It wasn't a mutiny. It was actually based on um, trying to get officers overriding uh, a computer system. Okay. So the U.S. Navy was like, oh, yeah, we are totally down for that. That's That's got some patriotic feel to it. We're we're, we're into that. We'll work closely with you. The problem is they ended up changing the plot uh, in the last minute, and it ended up becoming like it is in the movie now, a mutiny, and the U.S. Navy wanted nothing to do with it. Really? So they actually refused to work with those directors that they had worked so closely with in Top Gun. And it kind of created a, a little rift between the directors and producers in the u s Navy interesting so yeah. they they didn't have any input no not really much of okay. anything now and that is kind of where I think some of the producers and directors kind of took some uh, took some freedoms with some of these things mm-hmm. and that's where maybe a little bit of some some minor factual errors came in like some uniform errors like background footage errors but it was honestly mostly well done especially considering they didn't have the Navy to kind of back them up Um one of the things I actually think is, is kind of interesting is that they needed to get as, as real um, of a submarine as possible. So they actually used the USS Alabama sub. But the problem is they never got a permit to take pictures. So some historians are kind of laughing to this day, wondering how they got pictures. And actually, it, it's quite illegal, believe it or not, to take pictures of the USS Alabama and then use those pictures. And, and um, I don't know if they, they took videos of it all. I didn't, I didn't see anything like that. But they used those pictures without a permit and put it in the movie. And not only use the pictures, but then distribute them right. worldwide. Exactly. I would say it's probably a, a big no-no. Um, I, there's one part that I, I absolutely love in the movie. And it's, and it's the height of the, the, uh, the confrontation between Gene Hackman and uh, Denzel Washington. And I always commented every time I watched this movie how real the confrontation looked between the two. And it come to find out, Gene Hackman actually punched Denzel in the face, accidentally, but he actually punched him in the face. And so you can actually see Denzel in sheer shock of what just happened. That is totally real. I don't know if the blood was real, but he turned around and you could actually see that that look on his face. He was a little dazed. Um, and, and Gene Hackman said it was it was tense, and it was it isn't too hard to imagine why it was that tense. And yeah. that was Gene Hackman directly after accidentally punching Denzel in the face.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, Phil. I'm thinking of two things as we've worked our way down from five now to two, and we're on the verge of giving the audience our top choice for for war films of all time. Really, even the historical fiction movies, the fiction needs to be historical. Yes. So the lengths that these directors and producers will go to in order to make things as accurate, the details as well as the big picture pieces as as much as possible – and I think you would agree what we've touched on. One of the common themes is regardless of topic, it, re- it really comes down to the acting. I mean, if you take yeah. a look at the films on your list, the films on my list up until this point, it's acting. It's how it's carried
1: out and how the story is really fostered. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Cause you could have the, the greatest story of all time, which I mean, most of these battles right. they are, they're incredible stories. That's why we do this podcast. But if you don't have the actors to portray how real it was, you're absolutely right. It's going to, it's going to fall short. That's great. All right. There's one
0: left last, uh, piece to get to, and that's our number ones.
1: All right, let's do it. All right, Phil, so here we are. We've gone from five down to one. Here's my number one uh, war movie of all time. I tried to keep a uh, poker face when you mentioned it for your number two. My number one is Saving Private Ryan. I couldn't agree with you more. It's one of the best films. Um, Of course, you mentioned Steven Spielberg and his idea of realism and Shock and awe—it uh, it, just bar none. It, it does such a great job with the accuracy. Um, the, I, I love a couple facts for the listeners: is uh, that D-Day landing scene alone cost eleven million dollars. Eleven million. Eleven million. Yeah. Um, and the invasion itself was actually not shot in France. France didn't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, for, you know, I can guess a few reasons, but it was actually shot in Ireland. Um, oh, interesting. And, yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. The realism too is actually, uh, especially when it comes to gunfire. They actually went to a, a, a gun range um, and recorded a bunch of sounds and the actions and stuff like that. So a lot of the um, cocking of the guns, a lot of the ammunition being released, um, and obviously the shots fired as well. Those are all actual uh, gunfire. And again, it's just
0: amazing the painstaking details right. yeah. that directors, especially somebody like a Steven Spielberg, yes, the length someone like that will go to. Exactly. And, and
1: of course, the movie wasn't perfect. There were some blunders that mm-hmm. historians have, have picked out, like... You know, a lot of the chin straps, uh, you know, when you see them walking through town, the chin straps are unbuckled, which that never would have happened because they're always trying to, you know, they're always trying to prepare for what the unexpected uh, might take place. Um, traveling in the daylight to find Private Ryan, that never would have really happened. Um, Tom Hanks' character, uh, he, he I, I don't know if you remember that part where he's kind of laying down and he's almost leaning on a motorcycle. Absolutely, That was a Euro M63. That wasn't actually released until 18 years after 1944, which I mean, who would ever know that, right? But well, a car guy like yourself might have picked maybe, up, maybe, yeah, yeah. Um, and this was something that I know I I'd kind of picked up. And this is a this is a, a positive impact, I guess, on, on some of the actors. Was uh, Tom Sizemore was actually um, approached by Steven Spielberg, and uh, you and I might have mentioned this uh, in the past. He was actually told by Steven Spielberg, "Listen, we're going to test you daily. We're going to get you off this drug addiction." And if I find any traces of, of drugs in your blood whatsoever, you're going to be fired immediately and they're going to and they're going to find another actor. So that actually was a positive impact on Tom Sizemore because he was off drugs for the entire uh, the entire. And, the he, movie. Was in and that he was fantastic. And he was a fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I am very curious. What is your number one? OK,
0: so here we are. My number one. I totally respect and love the fact that you put Saving Private Ryan first. OK, part of me wanted to put it first. My number one war movie of all time is the 1989 Edward Zwick film, Glory. Oh, Glory! Being a great Civil choice. War buff, thank you. Being a Civil War buff, I think I mentioned that when I did uh, Alpha and Omega. Yeah, that uh, earlier episode. I love the movie Glory. Um, 1989. It portrays the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, which was the first um, all Black African American uh, volunteer regiment in the U.S. Civil War. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, it very famously portrays uh, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, who headed that regiment, and it was played by Matthew Broderick. Yeah, um, which I always—it's such a serious kind of important role to play, and you think he was three years removed from you know Ferris Bueller's Day yeah. Off, which is you couldn't get much more goofy and and kind of humorous as that, and then he goes and really shows not only his growth but his his flexibility as as a as an actor i think is really important to that one of the important things i came across and kind of interesting it's actually thought that broderick was thought to be distantly related to the to gould shaw in real life wait yeah really? through his mother's side that there was a distant relation there and a connection in real life oh my god yeah. I, that's that never came across which my... is which is completely fascinating and um, also that there's an active group of civil war reenactors. They, they call themselves company B Okay. company B was dedicated to recreating um, not only in movies, but um, you know, civil war reenactments around the country, but they were the ones that they were called upon because of their background to portray a lot of the, the, the quote unquote, the extras in the movie Yeah. Um, and, and portray as the 54th Massachusetts. The group also marched in the 2009 presidential inaugural parade of President oh my Barack, gosh. Barack Obama, wow, which is very cool. You mentioned Denzel Washington and the and the great role he played in in um, your number two film, yeah, uh, Crimson Tide. He also this was one of his earlier films. It was also
1: his first Academy Award um, as a supporting actor for Glory. Uh, that's that's awesome. I, I got whenever I hear Glory, I, I immediately go to the music. The music Amazing. is is incredible. Yeah,
0: yeah, and we've mentioned Broderick. We've mentioned Denzel but obviously Morgan Freeman oh yeah and and the role that he played but for me what put this at number 1 it's really I love the story it's telling i think it's important in american history obviously but i love there's there's so many different scenes you can pick out from this movie True. and talk about just how how well orchestrated directed and acted they were the beach scene toward the culmination yep. of the film you mentioned the the songs and yeah, the, around the score, score. yeah amazing amazing acting uh, acting um when they run the credits at the end, the monument they show uh, in, in commemoration of the 54th Massachusetts is actually a real monument. If you're going to oh, wow. uh, visit Boston, Massachusetts, okay, so, you know, look that up and you'll be able to see that that from the uh, All right. film.
1: Now, I gotta I gotta ask you a question. Yeah, the notes you have in front of you is that actually a picture of Matthew Broderick? And yeah, and this is what we are saying. We're we're in the
0: process of of kind of updating our website we need to include these visuals because the picture of matthew broderick in the <laughs> oh film with God. the real robert gould shaw it's uncanny the, that, the resemblance it yeah. really is
1: so when you said that they were related I'm like there's no chance come on but now you you put the picture I'll side by what, side it's
0: yeah it's that's almost remarkable. It's, it's tough to tell the two apart Yeah. You know, wow wow so it, listen phil this has been fun it's our second chat that we've done yep i'm i'm hoping and i'm thinking as a listener you agree with some of our picks, you disagree with some of our picks. I think this is a great opportunity as a listener. Become part of the discussion. What right. did we get right and and what did we get wrong? What what films are you still sitting at home or sitting in your car thinking this film deserved to be on there? I can't believe neither one of the films <laughs> included this. You know, definitely, guys, reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, the missing chapter podcast at
1: gmail.com. Tell us what we got right. And what we got wrong, and and that's the beautiful part of of history is that you get to debate and discuss and that, and just having those conversations. That's really why we started this podcast. And also, don't forget if you go to our anchor site, um, you actually have a link to to send us a, a voice message, which we'll we'll post that voice message link um, on one of the social media sites uh, as well as our website at some point. And you know, I do want to mention there we do have a couple of honorable mentions. Oh, um, that's true. You know, that's true. I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I will throw out there one of them that I was really torn. Um, was Black Hawk Down? Black Hawk Down was my
0: five A. Really? It, it okay. Was, it okay. Was, yes. I. Right. I. It was between Platoon and Black Hawk Down. So
1: I'm glad okay. to hear that was on your list too. What else did you have, Phil? Honestly, that was that was the. I, I narrowed it down to. I mean, you could you could really stretch this, mm-hmm. and you could even say, would you consider like a Rocky four in a war movie? You know, so there. I try to narrow it down to the ones that are just major, major war movies. And Black Hawk Down was one that was was right there. Black Hawk Down was a great one. The other one I had on my list for for purely
0: entertainment purposes was The Patriot. Oh, you know what? With that, Al Gibson. I had totally forgotten about that one. But the historical inaccuracies compared yeah. to the other five that that I had on my list, it kind of outweighed it and pushed that out of the top yep. five discussion.
1: Yep, totally. But for pure entertainment purposes, it's a very entertaining Yeah, job. without a doubt. So, I, I, listen, for everybody at home, uh, thank you guys for listening. This was our top five, and I'm sure we'll, we'll have some more top fives in the future. Absolutely. And
0: if, you, if there are suggestions for what you'd like to hear on top fives, please, again, reach out to us. This is another episode of the Missing Chapter podcast with Phil Horinder and Phil Schoff. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff And I'm Phil Horinder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.